The fourth book in Cecily von Zygesar's Gossip Girl series is called Because I'm Worth It. It was published in 2003, and here's the summary from the back cover. It's February, and most cities are a cold, gray wasteland. But not New York. At least, not my New York. Our college applications are in, and it's time to blow off some steam. Best of all, Fashion Week is just around the corner, giving us plenty of opportunities to get dressed up and go completely wild. And just think, the later you stay out, the quicker the days will blur by. See you out there. Here are some of the things happening out there. Blair striking up a relationship with an older Yale alum in hopes of securing her admission to the school. Dan becoming an overnight literary sensation with the publication of his single poem in The New Yorker, then promptly brushing off new girlfriend Vanessa. Serena dating Blair's stepbrother Aaron, but leaving him in the dust when she becomes a hot commodity during fashion week. Nate shipping off to a fancy rehab after being caught buying weed in the park and Jenny falling into an awkward new friendship with a girl in her class named Elise. Like all Gossip Girl installments, Because I'm Worth It does not disappoint as a conversation starter here on the podcast, and this episode is a fun, wild, disturbing ride. My guests and I chat about the allure of the series for teens in the aughts, the way our opinions about the Blair versus Serena binary have evolved over time, why Vanessa might just be the star of Because I'm Worth It, the author's unfair depiction of queerness, Blair's bizarre relationships with older men, and more. Unfortunately, like all Gossip Girl books, this one features potentially triggering content around eating disorders, weight, and body image, so keep that in mind before you listen. There are also mentions of addiction and overdose in this conversation. Let me introduce you to this week's guest, Jamie Lilac. I know you will enjoy spending time with her just as much as I did. Jamie earned a BA in English Literature and a Master's in English Education. She now works in Environmental Education. As an author, she is interested in writing about romantic, cool girls and spinning stories filled with love, magic, mythology, and secrets. When she isn't writing, you can find Jamie playing with her two dogs, Banks and Reese, planting flowers, reading fairy tales, and watching 90s movies. Bellegarde is her debut novel, and you'll hear all about it at the end of my interview with her. Follow Jamie on Instagram at jamie underscore lilac. Spoiler alert, her feed is really pretty. If you're new to the show, make sure you're following along with all things SSR on social media too. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. If you're interested in getting involved with a more active virtual book club, now is a great time to jump into SWR, or Shit We Read. We recently started our October discussion about the once and future witches. Learn more and join us at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. When you join SWR as an SSR patron, you'll be supporting the podcast and getting a bunch of super cool exclusive rewards in return. Thank monthly newsletters, reading recap videos, bonus episodes, an invite to our Discord channel, access to bonus Q&As with every guest. It's all good stuff. I would love to see you there. I am so grateful to the patrons currently supporting SSR. It truly makes a huge difference in helping the show grow. As we approach my maternity leave in January, I would ask all of my listeners to consider joining the fun. The truth is that it will be a lot harder for me to restart the show in the spring if we don't continue growing the Patreon family. If you're planning lots of travel this fall and into the holiday season, you're going to need some good audiobooks. And I recommend finding them at Libro.fm. 
That's L-I-B-R-O F-M. Once you're there, you can use code SSR podcast when prompted to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Libro.fm is a fantastic place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hoff-Kosick, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Jamie. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you for having me. Are you ready to go on a glamorous, glitzy adventure to New York's Upper East Side? Absolutely, I'm so ready. Okay, everybody, it's a Gossip Girl Day, and longtime listeners of the podcast know what that means. It means that we really have to question, or at least I really have to question, I won't speak for you, Jamie, I really have to question what the hell I was reading when I was in high school, because Every time I revisit one of these books without fail, I'm like, this can't be, this can't be the book that I read as a kid. So yeah, that's going to be my intro. We're reading the fourth book in the series, Because I'm Worth It. It was published in October of 2003. And Jamie, I really just want to hear from you about Gossip Girl as a whole, your relationship to the series, if you read the books, which books you read, how you felt about them. We can talk about the show. Tell me about Gossip Girl for you. So I was growing up whenever Gossip Girl was becoming a thing. And I can remember going to my high school library. I'm not sure if I was reading them like in eighth grade. I'm not sure if our our library had them, if they would have stocked them at the middle school. But I can definitely remember being like a freshman in high school and going in. And I don't know if this was how it was at your high school, but it was like, you had to just hope that the book that you were on in the series was stocked and someone didn't have it. So I can remember like always going back and forth, like hoping that the one I needed was there and then getting it. And we had like, even as a freshman, we had like kind of time to be in the library during the day. And I can remember going and we had these huge like beanbag chairs and I would lay in them and read these books and just kind of like laugh to myself because the one thing that sticks out to me was this scene where Nate is like smoking weed in the park. Classic Nate. (laughs) Right. And for me as a little freshman, it was like, oh my gosh, this is so scandalous. But also so like, that was where the allure came from, right? It was so far out of the realm of possibility for little small town teenager. So, So yeah, I really, reading this, although shocking, was also like a, a tad bit nostalgic as well. Were you into the show at all? Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> for sure. It makes me now want to go back and, and watch it and see if I have kind of a similar reaction as an adult to the, the show as I had to, the, to this book. 
Yeah. Well, interestingly, when I was researching for our conversation today, and this is like very timely, actually, there's so much out there about how the Gossip Girl show was like the first big streaming success after House of Cards. Like it was one of the first shows that went back on a streaming platform, having already been released on a network, and then everybody ate it up. But I also learned that when the writers were on strike I don't know what year this happened, but the CW kept running old episodes of Gossip Girl because the writers, you know, were on strike and not producing new content. And I was thinking about how it'll be interesting to see like what shows emerge out of the current strike we're in, because that was part of how the show got even more momentum because people were able to see episodes that they maybe hadn't caught the first time around. Right, because they had such a a huge stock of them. I mean, just thinking about how many books there were, I remember feeling even more overwhelmed by the series. Yeah. They just kept coming out. So, so yeah, that, that's interesting that they just kept releasing, you know, they kept kind of showing ones and you would, you would catch ones that you hadn't seen before. I remember the show just being huge and especially too, like their, the cast was just perfect. And I feel like that's probably a lot of their sort of like breakout roles. I mean, Blake Lively is still Serena to me, you know? Yeah, always. Do you remember if you leaned more Serena or more Blair? Because I feel like everybody kind of had a team, both with the books and the show. Oh, I was 100% Serena. But reading this book, I was like, Serena's kind of, kind of an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I sort of like felt bad for Blair in, in small ways. So so yeah, I think book Serena maybe was a little bit different than than show Serena. And two, thinking about it as well, they kind of make you hate Blair a little bit, right, in the show. And Serena's just so, such a like cool, calm, like has it all together person, right? All together in her own totally messy way. But in the book, you're like, oh, she's kind of annoying. No, I totally hear you. I think that the Blair-Serena thing is a fascinating dichotomy. They both kind of suck in the books. And I was thinking about like my memories of rereading the other books, which we've done on the podcast over the years. And I can link those episodes, listeners, if you want to go check them out. I feel like maybe Blair and Serena trade back and forth, like who's the bigger asshole in each installment, which makes sense because so much of the series is built on their status as frenemies and like... Mm -hmm. They're always fighting, but yet they're obsessed with each other, which is so true, I think, of many high school friendships. So I was trying to remember if I felt that Serena was an asshole in other books. And I do think it went back and forth. I think Blair is more easily hateable, Mm -hmm. which is a shame and something that we've talked about on other episodes too, where it's like, it's unfortunate that these traits of ambition and intensity and single-mindedness especially I think in the aughts in the early aughts were like shorthand for annoying and like just being bad because as an adult I'm like no I mean Blair is a snob Blair takes herself really seriously but the traits that I think we sort of were pushed to dislike in Blair actually are the same traits that probably would have made her really successful in the real world. For sure. I had that exact kind of experience when I was reading this. It was like, am I a Blair fan? <laughs> she she was doing, which maybe as a teen, I read as difficult or just it, all of those things that 
that women get thrust upon them as negative. Mm -hmm. But if those same traits are put onto a man, they're never seen that way. Right. And so I was, I was reading and I was like, Blair's actually like kind of fine. And, and, And I know that I didn't see that as a teenager, which is, which is interesting to, to kind of see that I gained that perspective over time. For me, Vanessa was the real star of this book. And for me, Vanessa was never the star. So we'll talk more about that. But I was really taken with her character. And I don't think I ever had that experience with her. I mean, on the show, Vanessa was like much cooler than she was in the books. Mm -hmm. But this, I was like, wait, maybe Vanessa wins in Because I'm Worth It. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. She really was the star for me. Okay, so let's talk about what's happening in Because I'm Worth It. At the beginning of the book, we find out that it is February of all of their senior years. So they're waiting to find out if they got early acceptance into these very competitive colleges that they have been working so hard to get into. And I wanted to read a line from the opening Gossip Girl blog post. I just love the whole notion of like the Gossip Girl blog. It's so old school. But Gossip Girl of College Acceptance writes, I'd like to take a moment to point out that the decision is completely arbitrary because basically we're all perfect specimens. We're gorgeous, intelligent, well-mannered, and eloquent, with influential parents and perfect transcripts, except for the occasional blip, like getting kicked out of boarding school or having to take the SATs eight times. So this is this is the world that we are dropped into, the world of elite boarding schools and the world of basically it being a foregone conclusion that these kids are going to get accepted into every college they apply to. Do you remember this chapter of your high school experience, like that intensity after winter break, senior year, everybody's just kind of like on pins and needles waiting to find out about college stuff. Absolutely. I was just determined to move away. I wanted to go to Los Angeles. I wanted to be at UCLA. So I remember applying to all these different places. And then kind of when the time came, it was like, I can't move away from everything that I know. I went to, I ended up going to the University of Georgia and I remember it feeling like a world of possibility, right? But then at the same time, the the thing that no one was talking about and something that you kind of see a little bit in, in this book is that you're about to lose kind of everything that you know. I think the reason that I ended up going to the college that I went to was because so many of my friends were going there. And so, yeah, I I remember it being an exciting time, but also a terrifying time because it's sort of, it's, it's almost like you don't talk about it, right? It's like, oh, well, where are you going? And it's like, oh, I'm going to, I don't know, Tennessee or I'm going here. And it's like, oh, so we're all just going to like split up and maybe never talk again. And I see you every single day. And and so there was a, a little of that too. It was like, well, Nate's going here and Blair wants to go here. And it's like, oh. You guys have been together forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it sounds like we're the same age. And so if I remember correctly, like when I was a senior in high school, Facebook had just become a thing, but social media was nowhere near what it is now. And that's the world that the Gossip Girl cast is living in as well. And so there was no thought of like, oh, it doesn't really matter that we're not going to see each other every day because we can still be intimately involved in each other's lives through social media. Like, Yes, I was posting on people's walls and like awkwardly (laughs) leaving videos on their walls, which in hindsight is just so funny. Like I sort of wish I could go back and watch those, but maybe it's better that I can't. (laughs) And there was no promise that even if we never saw each other again, we still 
wouldn't be looped in. And of course, now we know that like we do have the ability to stay up to speed on what everybody from high school is doing, like maybe too much, to be honest. But Mm -hmm. when these books are written and when you and I were in this position, that wasn't necessarily going to be the case. So yeah, there's this like weird flip side to... I, I also like really wanted to leave. I wanted to do something totally different. I wanted to get away. And then it's not until all of the papers are signed and like you're getting ready to graduate that you're like, oh, wait, there's this other part of this experience, which is saying goodbye, which is sad. And then there's also like in this book, and I remember people joking about this with me and just because of my personality, I didn't necessarily experience senior year like this. I think there's this whole idea of like a senior spring and how you know, once you apply to college and once all of the grades are in, like, you don't have to care anymore. And at the beginning of Because I'm Worth It, most of the characters are kind of in that mindset of like, fuck it all. Like, we've already applied. Now we can have fun. And I think Nate uses the phrase, like, kick it. Like, we can just kick it and like spend all of our money and do fun things. And I feel like that's definitely an idea that you hear a lot about. It's not what I experienced, but that's sort of the groundwork for this book too. Yeah, you know, I don't remember that being the case at all. I feel like I remember that time being, if nothing else, like more stressful than the rest. Because even if, you know, if you have gotten in and then it's this sort of like race to figure out where you're going to live and who your roommate's going to be and what all you need and, you know, just, just all of those things. And also having the anxiety of maybe I'm just an anxious person, but same. <laughs> just having that, like the anxiety of, you're about to leave everything. I'm from such a small town. So that concept was even kind of bigger. Yeah, it's it's definitely a complicated time emotionally. And there is one character in Gossip Girl Because I'm Worth It who doesn't really have the security in her college decision that most of the other characters seem to have. And that is surprisingly Blair. So maybe we start by talking about her there are four like key character storylines. I would say there's Blair, Serena, Dan, and Nate. Let's start with Blair because where we picked up, she's just had this disastrous Yale interview. She like basically like tries to make out with the interviewer. The whole thing is really embarrassing. She didn't sleep the night before. And now she's pretty sure that she's never going to be able to go to Yale, which was her dream. And she's struggling with that because she's worked so hard. And again, as like much as Blair is hateable, and I felt that Blair was hateable and deserving of all of the hate she got when I was a teenager. As an adult, I like look at this 17, 18 year old kid and I'm like, you have worked so hard. This was your number one dream. Your parents have put all of their hopes and dreams into you. Like your dad went to Yale. You've been wearing a Yale sweatshirt since you were a baby. Like this sucks that you did something super embarrassing and now that probably is all wiped away. Like she was advised not even to apply early acceptance because they just didn't think it would be a good use of her time and her application. So she like is so far behind most of her peers. And that must be so hard for somebody like Blair who's used to being ahead of everybody all the time. Yeah, you know, if it was really interesting because if you would have asked me like who's going to have the easiest time getting into an Ivy out of this group. Yeah. I would have probably said Chuck first. Right. But then I would have put Blair like very close second, very close second. So seeing that she was the one struggling was just really interesting. I remember there being like a little bit of that in the in the show. I remember a little bit of that, but that was interesting to me too. And then also kind of how they had her go about that. You know, she's talking about how she 
really messed up this first interview. She tried to kiss the interviewer and then we see her, you know, push into this other interview and it sort of sort of starts going the same way. Yeah. So yeah, that was a lot. The girl has patterns. There's this guy named Owen Wells and he just calls her up one day and this is this is where we see Blair being like the ultimate nepo baby because Owen calls her and literally says like Yale is so grateful for all the money that your dad gives the school and we feel like you need another chance, but we sort of have to like legitimize your second start into this application process. So I volunteered to be your interviewer. So we kind of know like, okay, she's going to get into Yale because they're like doing everything they can to set her up to get into Yale because otherwise her dad's probably going to be really pissed. So Owen is this older man. He's friendly with Blair's dad, which we are reminded of time and time again because of course like she starts to develop feelings for him because he's attractive and very sophisticated he openly tells her that he's gonna like turn a blind eye if she orders a drink when they have their meeting like there's so many inappropriate things happening here that in 2023 and probably even then I mean this is just like horrifying to me that this grown man is taking a high school student out for drinks under the guise of a college interview. But every time she sees him, she's like, oh my God, she's like my dad's friend. Like he could be my dad. But she's very taken with not only the idea that he can help her get into Yale, but with this whole life that he could sort of like set her up with. And Blair has a habit of romanticizing her life. We know this, like her life is a movie. She is the star. Every time she does anything, she imagines herself as Audrey Hepburn or some other leading lady. And she's like, okay, so now Owen Wells is leaving his wife and we're obviously going to be in a relationship and everything's going to be fine. And Yale almost becomes like secondary to that, which is interesting because the whole reason she's even chatting with Owen is because of Yale. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I I was pretty shocked at how, and horrified really, at how just sort of, easily this relationship makes its way into the book and how too I found myself I was like okay well the the onus of blame cannot be on this high schooler no right Mm -mm. because I kept thinking well okay if teenagers are reading this book right who's coming in 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 the book to kind of confront Blair and be like hey this, this is a problem this is a problem right because essentially it felt like the only reason she started thinking it was a problem was when she found out he was married and also to like Elise's dad right it's kind of like okay I know his daughter this is a problem and there was a moment where it seemed like she did sort of acknowledge the power imbalance right when he like is trying to call her And she, I think, picks up the phone and says something like, you know, he's like, where have you been? And she's like, in high school. Yeah. I've been at high school. (laughs) I'm busy. Like, my time is also valuable. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. But I think I kept looking for someone, and I don't know who that someone would have been. I mean, to me, I feel like it should have been an adult, but I kept looking for someone to sort of step in and be like, hey, this isn't, this isn't okay. Side note, also, I had to laugh when she, you know, she kept kind of calling him like an old man, basically. Yeah. And then at one point, I was like, he's like 37 or 38. Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, we're also just ignoring the fact that like all of these parents are apparently in their mid to late 30s, which means they were all very young when they had these teenagers. The math just like isn't mathing for New York City. (laughs) It's not mathing. Yeah, he's she's like, oh my gosh, like his daughter is at my school and he's like 37. Oh, (laughs) ouch. (laughs) How is this working out? Yeah, the math just doesn't work. The same with the OC. Like, all the parents on the OC were, like, 37, 38, and they all have these teenagers, and they're all rich. Like, they've all managed to have young marriages. They've been parents at a young age, and they've all had these really successful careers. It's just um, right, definitely not realistic. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Blair is also going through it. Like, I think part of why she's so attracted to him is because – her he seems like a stable option when all of these other things are going wrong obviously Yale is rocky her mom has gotten remarried and is pregnant and has decided that Blair has to give up her room for this new baby which is so messed up and I really did feel for Blair in that moment Serena is dating her stepbrother Aaron and so she's kind of been pushed out of her family and of her friendship with Serena and all of the things that used to make her feel superior which is like a thing that I don't like about Blair like feeling superior is so important to her, have kind of gone away. And so Owen offers something different and fresh for her to feel superior about. I loved this line. She honestly couldn't give two fucks about the clothes or that Serena was the star of the show. It was all Serena needed to prove that she really was the center of the universe. She was going to Yale, the premier institution of higher learning in the entire world. And she was going to be asked out very soon by a classy older man. She felt extremely accomplished for someone so young. The noise and glitz of Fashion Week seemed less alluring now than her own life was. So stimulating. <laughs> like our whole life is stimulating now because of Owen. <laughs> yeah, and I always felt too like Blair was annoyed by Serena, but maybe not so much drastically threatened by her mm. because I felt like Blair always thought she had all these things over her right like she was Audrey Hepburn and Serena was Marilyn Mm -hmm. and that somehow put her on a higher level right like she was the Serena might be this hot bombshell really alluring but she had the brains and the charm and like you know it was like she felt like this sophistication put her on a different level and I remember I remember being I remember not liking that as a teenager but it's, it is interesting kind of the things that she prioritized and put stock into. There's really nothing wrong with those things. I mean, there is if you're looking at it to say that you're better than. But it, it, it's interesting kind of what you said about Serena has, you know, she can kind of be the center of the, the world, but I'm going to Yale, right? As if that's more and, and yeah. The big red flag with Blair in this book, as it always is, uh, is the way that she really flippantly moves through her eating disorder. And even more so than it's a red flag for Blair, like quite frankly, it's a red flag, I think, for the author and for the series as a whole. There's so little care taken in the way that eating and eating disorders show up on the page here. Listeners know that this is a very sensitive thing for me. I know it's a sensitive topic for lots of listeners. And every time I come back to one of these books, it is painful. Like, I just cannot believe that anybody thought it was okay to portray 
bulimia so blatantly and almost as a joke. There's a line here that says bulimia is for losers. Like she's just like kind of brushing off this very obvious problem that she has. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that books for kids and for teens shouldn't explore eating disorders. I don't think that's the solution, but I do think it's really mind-blowing to me that we have yet to stumble on a character in any of these books that is able to see what's going on with Blair and point her in the direction of help. I mean, she goes to rehab at the end of Because I'm Worth It, but it's really because she's like glamorizing it because she heard that like Nate was having fun there and she sort of was seeing it as like a reset after everything happened with Owen. She jokes about her bulimia. There is this interesting like dichotomy between Blair and Serena and the way that they approach food. Like at the school cafeteria, you see how much Blair is is controlling what she takes and what she puts on her tray, whereas Serena like being so carefree and just like open to the world, she just puts whatever she wants on her tray. And I think that's, you know, that's something that anybody who has dealt with disordered eating to any level can understand. Like food can equal freedom for a lot of people. And it's just really, there's so little nuance to it in this book and there's so little care that it just, it's so upsetting. I was shocked by the weight related things in this book more than anything else. Yeah. More than the older man relationship, more than the comments about Chuck's sexuality. The weight related things were the one thing because I kept thinking, I just had a daughter. She's four months old. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I just kept thinking, I would never, and I've, I've never thought that I would be this parent, right? But I kept thinking, like, I would never want her to read this based on those comments alone. Because like you said, there was such little care, especially ones that really got me were the ones dealing with Elise. There was one time, I have a huge, huge problem with this and anything in in movies and books, anything. If someone posts on Instagram, whatever it might be, right? I have a huge problem with someone who, or even just someone speaking to you, who says like, oh, I'm so big or, or whatever it might be. And then says their pant size or their weight in number. Because if they're saying, I'm so big, I weigh this. Right. And then you weigh 40 pounds more than that or 100 pounds more than that, whatever it might be. It is just, I hate that more than anything. And they did that in this book. Elise is trying on jeans. And I'm not even going to say the size because it bothers me that much. But she makes a a comment about it. And I just remember thinking, this is, I, I know that I'm, I was reading these books in high school and I am sure instead of going, there's something wrong with this text, something wrong with what the author's doing here, I'm instead going, there's something wrong with me, right? There was also a comment that Jenny made about Elise, um, because, you know, Elise had, of course, disordered eating, and, and Jenny made a comment, something about, I don't remember the exact text, but it was essentially that being around Jenny being around Elise made Jenny feel like she should actually eat more Mm -hmm. that she was too thin or something to that effect. And my like jaw dropped. I sat there and read it a second time because I was like, there's no way that was the comment that being around a friend who is larger than you makes you feel, makes you feel anything. 
Right. Yeah. I, I had huge, huge problems with that. And it really did make me wonder because these books were such a huge influence. And of course it wasn't just these books. There were, and there still is so many things in different media that sort of shoved this onto us as women, especially as women, but, um, but everyone, but of course, we grew up in the era of Victoria's Secret and all of those things. And I was just really horrified thinking, did this really kind of spread throughout my high school, every high school? I don't know. It was it was just really, it was disturbing, to be honest. That's a great word for it. And I think there's so much there in what you just said. I'm so glad that you shared it. I know it's so hard to read. I think comparison just runs rampant in these books in every way, but particularly with respect to people's bodies and the way that one friend might compare her body to another friend's body. And I use the word her very specifically because it really is only with the girls in the book. I also think to your point about the specific references to Elise's size, I also won't say the size, but it's worth noting, if I'm not mistaken, that the size that was mentioned is well below the average size of an American woman. And it usually is. Yeah, you know, it always when, is. When a size that's mentioned, it, it always is. Yeah. It always is. And I think the other trouble with the weight and body discourse in Gossip Girl is that one of the biggest points of appeal of this series, I think, or at least one of the biggest points of appeal for me, was like this glamorous vibe. And as a kid growing up in the suburbs who wanted to live in New York and like dreamed of this kind of life, I sort of naturally assumed that everything that was happening in Gossip Girl was cool and good and desirable. And so anytime weight and bodies are discussed in this way, it's dangerous and predatory to young people. But I think especially when you're like assigning glamour to everything on the page, it just elevates the stakes. So Yes, it's very disappointing to read um, the way that eating disorders are glamorized and just sort of like shrugged off. Like I would say glamorized at worst, shrugged off at best is just like a normal thing that people deal with. It's hard to read. And also just a reminder of like the diet culture and the toxic body stuff that we've all dealt with. You mentioned Elise, and I can't believe that I didn't think to mention Elise when I was kind of like running through the main storylines at the beginning because I really struggled with the Jenny Elise storyline. And for context listeners, Elise is a fellow freshman that Jenny meets as part of Blair and Serena's like peer advisory group. Blair has decided to take on like essentially community service and like mentor freshman girls. And Elise is a new friend of Jenny's. Jamie has already mentioned a couple of the things that we see go on between the two of them. They go shopping, they try on jeans. But we also pretty quickly get the sense that Elise is interested in Jenny as more than a friend. And there are some things that go on with Elise that are very inappropriate and like non-consensual. Like she just like takes off her clothes to pose nude for Jenny so that Jenny can paint her um, without like asking if that was okay. But beyond that, I mean that again, like non-consensual, not cool. Like You need to ask a person if it's okay for you to undress in front of them. It's very traumatizing, especially for a young person to like just turn around and see that their new friend is naked and expecting them to paint them. But I felt like in general, the depiction of Elise was unfair. And this just kind of like undercurrent that 
a girl like Elise can't be trusted in a friendship with a girl like Jenny simply because she's interested potentially in girls. And it was such a reminder of the distance that I think we have come in so many ways with the way that queer folks are depicted because I just, like, you you don't see that anymore, thankfully. Like, there is this understanding that, like, yes, a queer person can be friends with a non-queer person and it doesn't ever have to become inappropriate. But there is this sense that Jenny, like, immediately distrusts Elise because she begins to suspect that Elise has a crush on her. And, like, yes, Jenny is entitled to be uncomfortable, but there was this weird, like, the word that I can, the only word I can use is predatory. Like, it just felt like the author was kind of assigning a predatory character to Elise when Elise is like just a teenager trying to figure things out like everybody else. I'm so glad that you brought this up. I'm so glad. (laughs) Because it was when I was reading, it's almost like I had to, I had to separate what was happening in the text with who I felt like the character actually was. Yeah. Because I'm reading Elise and and I like Elise, right? Yeah. And so then she starts doing these things and it was almost like not giving her a pass for those non-consensual things, but it felt so forced by the author that it was like, she is just, like you said, creating a predatory, almost like this really wrong stereotype of the queer person who can't be friends with someone of the same sex without this whole like, oh my gosh, have they ever tried to kiss you? Do you think they like you? It's like, no, we're friends. We, we can be friends. And it was just so this feeding into that horrible stereotype where the only person we see that's Elise's friend is Jenny. And so now she's trying to kiss Jenny and she's getting naked in front of her. And while Jenny is rightfully uncomfortable by these things, it just should have never happened that way in the text. Yes. I, I think it would have been cool to to see Elise exploring her sexuality in, in a way that was very different from this. I would have liked to have seen that. I would like for teenagers to be reading that, but but certainly not this because it just reinforces that stereotype and it's just oh, yeah hated that but also was able to kind of separate who I felt like Elise was yeah from what the author was doing to her like I feel like Elise was victimized by the author in this case like I'm like Elise wouldn't do this no I mean like super weird again that Elise just like took her clothes off and was like paint me like one of your French girls and also super weird that Elise wrote a story about Jenny's boobs in creative writing class. Mm-hmm. But also like very weird that a creative writing teacher in a high school environment would be like break up into pairs and everybody can <laughs> write about a body part of your partners. Like right. super forced. That There had to have been a more delicate way to go about doing that. But I had very strong feelings about the depiction of Elise. So I'm glad we went there. I'd say the other characters' storylines are a little bit shorter and easier to tackle. Let's go to Serena first because she really just flipped through this book. I mean, at the beginning, she's dating Aaron. They're really into each other, even though they seem super different. And she, of course, is like casually discovered by a fashion designer and invited to walk in his fashion show. And Serena being Serena somehow manages to make it past whoever's in charge of the fashion show wearing a t-shirt that says I heart Aaron because she's worried that her boyfriend's going to be mad that she chose to walk in a fashion show instead of hanging out with him and she's like oh like this will make up for it I'm so adorable 
And yeah, she like sort of just floats through the rest of the book. Am I missing anything? Like she's going to all these parties. She decides she doesn't really care if Aaron's mad at her. Like it's all very flippant. Yeah, her identity in this book was I love Aaron. Yeah, but I also love fashion and I love being hot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And you know, it was it was very different to see Serena to, to read this book in which Serena kind of was not we're seeing Aaron who doesn't seem that into her yeah and that was so different I was like someone's not into Serena how when does that happen you know I I don't even remember that being a thing that someone wasn't just enamored by her yeah it's a rare thing I did pull out this one quote about Serena that I loved it says that was the great thing about being so beautiful and so carefree it didn't matter who you were with or what silly thing you were doing you always had a fabulous time in fact you didn't even have to be in love with just one person when the world was already so in love with you and yes serena is like a huge asshole in this book but like i do still even as a 32 almost 33 year old person like wish i had a little piece of that like the whole world loves me so i don't need to worry too much <laughs> for sure you know when they i guess they break up yeah. I mean, it was such a quick, like, nothing. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, I wish that I could have done that in high school. I wish it could have been like, oh, okay. This person who was going around saying, I love, I love, I love. Then all of a sudden we're broken up and she's just kind of fine. Everything's fine. I'm just going to go to some parties. Like, let's just go to some fashion parties. <laughs> right. Right. Become a muse. You know, all of a sudden all these designers are designing for her. So, yeah, that was Serena's storyline pretty thin. Um, Let's go to Nate. His storyline was also kind of thin in that it all revolves around smoking pot and getting caught smoking pot. He's single in this book, which he generally isn't. I believe in all three books that came before, he's either with the player or with Jenny. And now he is free, as he would say. And now he's like in the park trying to find his dealer to get some weed and his dealer is wearing a wire and so Nate gets caught (laughs) buying weed. I just was amused by the stark contrast between like the way we talk about pot now and the way pot is depicted in this book because like in 2003 when this book was written like apparently smoking weed was like the literal worst thing you could do whereas now to use the word nuance again like there's so much more nuance around that conversation And that we have such bigger fish to fry in terms of substances that it was almost laughable, like how intense the conversation about smoking pot was in this book. You know, that is something that I actually, even still as an adult, kind of admire a little bit about these books. Not not the way that it's depicted, but yeah, that it's even there at all. Because I find that as an author, there is a lot of pushback in the young adult sector. If you want to have really anything that goes past like PG-13, right? If you want to talk about weed, if you want to say the word fuck, if you want there to be sex, not like graphic sex on the page. I understand that maybe not having a place in young adult. Right. But... I did admire that and still do about Gossip Girl, that they have drugs on the page and then there's, you know, talk of people having sex, people hooking up, whatever it might be. I've always felt like young adult needs more of that truth, really, because 
even though there were a lot of young adult books that I that I loved um, and still do, I felt like Gossip Girl was one of the only ones when I was in school that really talked about these things. Because my friends were, they may have not been doing drugs, but everyone was drinking, they're having sex. It was it was a normal thing for when I was in high school. And so I wanted to see more books like that and really didn't get them. And I think it's still a problem today. But yeah, it was kind of a funny thing seeing seeing Nate like freaking out like, oh man, my my dealer at the pizza shop is gone. And and I also just started cracking up when the whole time he's like, I'm not going to be one of those guys that like goes to Central Park and buys weed. And then he like gets so desperate that he goes into Central Park and buys weed. And gets caught. And then sent to some fancy rehab facility in Greenwich, which, again, like Blair finds to be very appealing because it's so glamorous. Mm -hmm. When he's there, he meets Georgina Spark, who I remember very strongly from the show, not so much from the books. And Georgina is like dealing with a much different level of addiction than Nate is, which I think that's more like the kind of addiction that we talk about in 2023. And Nate develops a big crush on her and goes to her house and unfortunately witnesses her OD. And to his credit, like he immediately calls his counselor from rehab and the counselor talks him through what to do to make sure that Georgina stays as safe as possible. And that was a moment that I was like, okay, like this is a case where the author is putting something really scary and maybe to some adults like too mature on the page for teens but she's at least giving her readers like some practical tools to deal with it and that's the kind of thing that I wish she did more with like the eating disorder content and some of the other more adult matters like I don't have any problem with introducing teens to mature themes I just think you have to sort of show some different ways to approach them so that kids know that there are like tools to manage them in real life so yeah, it was upsetting to see Nate be like so taken in by all of that, but he he did it. He handled it and he I think did as well as could have been expected for a kid like Nate. For sure, you know, when I say like I wouldn't want my daughter to read that, really it's it's the way that things I think were certain things were mishandled, right? Yeah. Everything else it's like all of those themes are things that I want her to read about and have the tools to deal with. Um, It was just the things that were mishandled. But I think, you know, you're totally right. This was one of the things that she did do correctly, where when Nate realizes that Georgina has OD'd, he does the right thing and also has a moment of kind of like hesitation of what do I do? There's not this immediate sort of false, he knows exactly what to do and goes right into action. It's like, as a kid, you would be trying to figure out what your next steps are. So I thought I thought that was interesting as well, showing kind of the the human side to it, and then having him ultimately ultimately make because he could have called the police, right? So it, it was an interesting choice that you know he called someone that they knew, someone that seemed like a safe person. So yeah, I do like how that was how that was handled. That was one of the things that stood out to me as actually kind of. Getting it right. Yes. Check on that. So we'll wrap things up with a conversation about Dan. And as people who live and work in the publishing realm, uh, I would imagine (laughs) that we both just thought this was all pure comedy. 
Dan uh, having had one poem submitted to the New Yorker and one poem published entitled Sluts, which is a whole other conversation, now is apparently a literary phenom in New York. And even as a high school student is just getting an unsolicited offer for an agent, having spent six months querying agents before I landed one, this made me so angry. And uh, not only does he have an agent, but his agent is just like casually inviting him to like hang out and go to fashion parties, which is cool for Dan, but definitely not so cool for Vanessa, who is the one responsible for his budding literary career since she was the one who even sent sluts to the New Yorker. (laughs) And now Dan, of course, is like getting very high on his own supply and getting like fancy new haircuts. And he's dating this other literary phenom named Mystery Craze, who like is also a poet. The whole thing was just hilarious. Like, I wish that I lived in a world where budding literary talent had this much clout and like this much uh, influence anywhere that doesn't exist. And I'm pretty sure it didn't exist in 2003. But it's also easy for Dan and he just feels so good about himself as he embarks on his new adventure as a famous poet. This, so you know, of course, in these books, right, everything just sort of falls into these kids' laps, right? But this was such an extreme version of that. I mean, there were times when I found myself absolutely, like, truly laughing out loud. There was a moment when, so he's, you know, had this one poem published, not even sent in by himself, by his girlfriend, and we got a snippet of one of his poems before this, and... (laughs) <laughs> it wasn't even good like sluts isn't even good sluts isn't even good <laughs> and so he's he's been invited to this huge you know fashion week event by this enormous literary agent who wants to turn him into the next big thing and he is standing there talking with a supermodel <laughs> Somehow they come around to sluts and she's like, you (laughs) are the author of sluts. And I was, I was like, no way. You're not telling me that this supermodel has read sluts in the New Yorker. And this has stood out to her as the biggest thing of the year. That part just, it got me. It also, I think had only been like on newsstands for like a day. Yes. Like it would just been published. And I don't think what either of us is saying is that like, we we don't want people to be that pumped about a poem because like if only but the whole thing just it read as so absurd all of it like at every level what was happening with Dan's publishing career was absurd and Vanessa is the only person to see through it which is why she was the winner for me in this book because Mm -hmm. she's like kind of bummed about it at first they just had sex for the first time at the beginning she's really excited about that she thought it was such a special moment And then he gets famous all of a sudden and doesn't have time for her and is dating this girl named Mystery Craze, who sounds terrible. But the real winning moment for me for Vanessa was when she, so she also has her moment of discovery. I mean, everybody's having these huge opportunities at Fashion Week apparently, but a fashion designer saw one of her short films and asks if he can use it as the backdrop for his show, which is super cool. And now she has all of these like directors pursuing her and asking her to work with them But she's just been admitted to NYU, which is where she's wanted to go study film for her whole life. And when she gets an offer from a big director to like go work with him and like assist him on a film, 
she immediately turns him down because she like wants to do her own thing. And I really loved what she had to say about it because I thought it was so empowering. And I was like, she is the only person in this book who seems to have a handle on like what she wants to do. I pulled out this line, as flattered as she was that Ken had asked her to work with him, she had no intention of becoming a mini mogul. She wanted to develop her own voice and her own career, not put all her energy into someone else's work, however brilliant. So like, go Vanessa. I mean, she's seeing through Dan. She's going to make her own decisions about work. I'm sorry, Vanessa, for all the times that I didn't see how cool you are. Absolutely. Book Vanessa, so cool. Um, And what a stark contrast as well to Dan, who was easily my most disliked person in this book. He gets, you know, one single taste of fame from this poem in the New Yorker. And he's just, he sinks into it, right? He's all, he goes with mystery craze who he must have mentioned her yellow teeth 50 times. He's into them. Yeah, right. And it just, he just succumbs to all of it. And her, when she's given these opportunities where Dan's not even really given a solid opportunity, right? We never even see a real conversation with the literary agent where we're talking about what his career moves are going to be. But he just convinces himself that he really is the next big thing. And whereas she's given actual solid, you know, opportunities and offers, she turns them down. And um, yeah, I, I thought that was that was great. Go her, loved her. Um, there was also a scene towards the end. I don't remember if it was just kind of like the the author, you know, seeing her or what it was. But she's like, after she's get, gotten this big offer, she's filming like a dog, maybe like peeing in the snow or something like that. Oh, yeah. And I was like, yes, this is so, like you said, she knows exactly who she is and what she wants to do. Yeah, I, I really, I liked her storyline for sure the most. Yeah. If there's one lesson we can take from this book, I think it's that we should all beware of anyone who makes their big break on a poem called Sluts. Right. It's just, it's just a right. bad sign. I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but I would love to hear you just like really wrap this conversation up with your overall opinion on how this rereading experience compares to your memories of Gossip Girl from when you were a teenager. Does it hold up? Did it let you down? I think it, it, let me down in certain ways. It didn't fully ruin it for me because I think there is something special and iconic about Gossip Girl and what it was to our our generation. But it certainly let me see that when I was a teenager, I just had such different, such kind of more innocent, like naive thought pattern maybe. And so it let me down in the way that I know myself and all of my peers were reading these books. And I just kept thinking while reading it as an adult, what were these things doing that probably subtly slipped into our subconsciousness, right? All of the things about weight, we, you know, we didn't even talk about how Chuck's sexuality was sort of, it was, oh yeah, that was, that was, that was wild. Yes. His sexuality was called into question multiple times. And, and once I think on Gossip Girl in a very like public way, And also in very stereotypical fashion, like we talked about with Elise, it was sort of like Chuck has highlights. Chuck is hanging out at this kind of notorious gay bar. Is he queer? And it was like, this is not okay. So while it didn't fully ruin Gossip Girl 
for me because I still think that there's a a space for it in terms of it being iconic and being a staple in our generation. I am glad that I feel like young adult, the young adult sector is moving forward, like where we are hopefully well past that. And not only that, I kept thinking, I kept thinking that, or maybe having hope that this generation and upcoming generations have more tools to sort of call these things out as wrong as they're reading them, even if it was flipping into texts now. So I enjoyed it in the fact that it was nostalgic, but I also was shocked. (laughs) Well said. I think like it or not, these books are a part of like our, yours and mine, our generation's collective nostalgic zeitgeist. And that's just the way it is. I mean, and in that way, it's hard for it not to feel like candy to reread them because it's like, You just can't help but tap back into those emotions of being a teenager and like the aspirational quality of it is it's hard to ignore. But to your point, I do think most Gen Zers at this point would like be able to pick up this book and be like, what the fuck is this? Like what is going on? And their their tools are different and their awareness is different, which I think is a testament to to the development that we all have had, which is great. Other than because I'm worth it, gossip girl number four. What have you been reading lately, Jamie, that you might recommend more wholeheartedly to our listeners? Um, Let's see. I recently read Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, and I think it came out a couple of years ago. It's not super recent. I really enjoyed that, and then I s- sort of started like devouring all of his stuff. And then also I've been reading Paper Girls, the comic books. They made a show. They made a Paper Girls show. It got canceled after one season, which is... A total tragedy because it was amazing but I've been reading the comic books and it's sort of like girls in middle school who it's just such a beautiful like all those sci-fi realistic depiction of girls in middle school and the way that womanhood is explored and dealt with is just everything that you would want it to be everything that Gossip Girl kind of wasn't in this book <laughs> it is in this and so I, I wish that I'd had them when I was in middle school, for sure. But it also, you know, deals with things that adults can read and really appreciate as well. So great. That's, that's, that's what I've been into. Yeah. Fun. Well, I will include links to both of those recommendations. Also, you have a four month old. So the fact that you're reading at all feels impressive. I'm having a baby in January. And I'm like, so scared that I'm never going to be able to read again. I'm like, how do I I'm looking for all the tips to make sure that I'm not going to have to give up reading as soon as I become a mom. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm like, just the fact that you said that you'd been reading recently, it made me feel hopeful. So (laughs) it's just recently started. Okay. And what I do is bedtime at the, at her, her bedtime, which it was all over the place for a while, but at her bedtime now, I just get out my Kindle. Like when she's good and asleep, I still have her in my arms before I feel good enough to put her in her bassinet. She is like pin drop and she's awake. So um, I just got to the point where I felt like I could start reading. And honestly, it's become like one of my favorite parts of the day. I know that like eight o'clock, I'm going to be in bed. She's going to be milk drunk asleep and I'm going to have my book. And it is such a peaceful time for me. It's truly become like a religious thing. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. I bought a new Kindle like shortly after I found out that I was pregnant because I was like, this feels like I'll be able to read one handed. I'll be able to read in the dark. Like this 
this seems like it's going to make a big difference. So um, I will take those tips gladly. And I'm doing the math. And so if I'm doing the math correctly, your human baby and your book baby were born very close to each other because your debut novel came out this past summer. Congratulations on human baby, human baby, yep. and then human book baby, baby, right? April 25th. Okay. And the book baby was July 11th. Okay. So you've had a big year. It was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. And it, and it was a little difficult too, because I felt like I wasn't as present as you might be for debut. Yeah. Right. Like, having all these things set up. And I was like, well, I've got a newborn. How am I supposed to go do signings? And, you know, it was, so that was overwhelming, but it was also such a special thing. And to kind of always be able to share that with her, that like you were born right at the same time as like this huge dream of mine was coming true, you know? So, so it's also special. It's also very special. Well, congratulations on both. And we've heard a little bit about your human baby, but can you tell us a little bit about the book so that our listeners can go grab a copy? Yes. So um, the book is called Belgard. It's a young adult historical rom-com. It is She's All That, reimagined in 18th century France. The book follows Evie, uh, who is a baker's daughter, um, with a dream of being a fashion designer for the people. And Beau Belgard, who is a second-born son, and he makes a bet with his snobbish stepbrother that he can turn Evie into the winner of the court ball. And if he doesn't, he loses his inheritance. Mm. Um, and Evie also hates Beau, and for good reason. So that's what the, the book's about. It came out this summer. And you can pick it up wherever books are sold. Sounds perfect for like cozying up with this fall and winter. Like, oh, I'm so excited for you. So excited for all of our listeners to pick it up. Jamie, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. It's been great to dive back into Gossip Girl with someone, especially someone who grew up when I did. That's, that's really fun as well. Yes, what a ride. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>